0: Good morning, church. Sad we can't be together in person today, but uh, I hope you're enjoying the holiday. That's the reason the school is closed. It has nothing to do with COVID, and hopefully this will not be a long-term time apart from meeting in person, but we'll be able to be back together next week unless things change drastically. So we are in the middle of a series on the church. Uh, We started out two weeks ago and, and I started out by, by showing a picture of, of an American football and saying, this is a football. And I told the story of a football coach in the States who his team had come within minutes of winning the championship the year before. And they had lost. He came back. And at the start of the next season, the first thing he told his team is, this is a football. He brought them back to the basics and made sure that they got all the fundamentals down solidly so that they they had them perfect. And And I talked about how in the coming few weeks, we're going to try to do that with our understanding of what the church is, get back to the basics, review stuff that's hopefully pretty fundamental about the church. And so the first week we started by looking at the Bible because the Bible, God's word, is foundational for the church being the church. The second week, last week, I started with the question, what is a chair? And we talked about how with a chair, there's a core reality that makes a chair a chair. And there are external appearances that typically go with a chair, but don't always. And how if you understand the core reality, you can change some of the external appearances and still have a chair. But if you don't understand that core reality, you can put together something that looks on the outside a lot like a chair, but actually isn't a chair. And we talked about how the church is the same way. There's a core reality that makes the church the church. And if you understand what that is, you can can play around with some of the externals, things like the style of music you sing in a church service. And it's still a church. But if you miss out on that core reality and you put together a bunch of things that on the outside look like a church, you actually don't have a true church. And we looked at... Peter's letter and tried to come up with a definition for the church. What we came up with is the church is the people of God built on the foundation of Jesus assembled for the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel to those who don't yet know him, which I know it's a lot. Um, I'll give you a brief summary and if you want more details, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon. The church is the people. It's not a building. It's not an event. It's the people. It's built on the foundation of Jesus. The, the church exists because of Jesus and we're gathered around Jesus. And the church exists for the proclamation of the gospel to those who don't yet know Jesus. It's, the church exists for mission. If we're just gathering together and not going out into the world, we're not being the fullness of what we're supposed to be as the church. So that's where we left off last week. This week, we're gonna look at the question, in light of what the church is, what is the church supposed to do? And I realize we've already started that with last week's discussion about the church and mission, and also realize this is a huge topic. Today's sermon will not be able to cover all of it, but hopefully, this question about what's the church supposed to do can can be an ongoing conversation, and this can be one of those conversations in that ongoing conversation that can contribute to our understanding of what the church is supposed to do. So today we're gonna to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, to see what those verses have to tell us about this question. And it's short enough that I'm just gonna read it to you now in case you haven't read it yet. It says, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's today's passage. What we're going to see from this passage is that the church supports the truth short and simple and sweet the church supports the truth we're going to look at the identity of the church the obligations of the church and the motivation for the church but first let's pray father we thank you for your word and what it teaches us about you and who you call us to be we thank you for the church and for creating this reality that we get to be a part of as your people We pray that you would teach us today how to live as your people and that you'd be honored through the lives we live. And in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we're going to look at today is the identity of the church. So Paul says in today's passage that Christians are the household of God and the church of God. Now, the first thing I want you to notice right here, the word church right here is singular. Uh, If you've been following the family worship guide today, we had a great testimony sharing from John Snellgrove, about church unity. And we can see the unity that he was talking about in that sharing in this passage. It's not many churches, it is the church. There's only one true church. Now I know what you're thinking, what about all these churches that are all over the city and all around the world? So, so theologians have historically distinguished between what we call the local church and the universal church. The universal church is all Christians everywhere, all time. All Christians everywhere through all of time are part of this universal church. And, and that is the church where there is only one church, like John was talking about. The local church are small, specific manifestations of that universal church made up of specific Christians living in a specific place at a specific time. So the bridge church is would be a local church. Calvary Church over in Novatel is a local church. Island ECC is a local church. Um, and, and there are distinct and individual local churches, but all those local churches, if they're true churches, are part of the one true universal church. And, you know, that, that's why we at The Bridge see all other Bible-believing churches in Hong Kong, whether they speak English or Cantonese or Mandarin or another language, we see them, if they believe the Bible, if they believe in Jesus, we see them as our partners, not our competitors. You know, if someone becomes a Christian through one of the bridge's ministries, but then they start attending a different church that teaches the Bible and loves Jesus, that's a win for us because the universal church of Jesus Christ is growing, even if that person's not part of our local church. And Paul is saying here, God has built the universal church to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar, I think we all know what pillars are, the round things that hold up roofs and buildings. A buttress is if you have like a wall and maybe the wall has a tendency to lean in a certain direction and you put a diagonal support that holds the wall up like this, that's a buttress. Uh, And so the church is to be a pillar of the truth that holds it up high for the world to see and also a buttress of the truth that supports the truth. And that's true of the universal church, but it's also true of every local church because we are manifestations of the universal church. So the bridge church is called to be, according to Paul, a pillar and a buttress of truth, of the truth. And now you may be wondering at this point, huh, the church supports the truth, I thought, you know, we talked just a couple weeks ago about the Bible and how the church is built on the foundation of God's word. Isn't the church built on the truth? Yes, it is. That's, that's correct. The church actually has a mutually supportive relationship with the truth. It's built on the truth, and then in turn, it serves as a foundation for the truth. And we can see the fact that the church is built on the truth from several different Bible passages, like in John 17, 17, where Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We see that God's word is the truth and that God's word works inside us to draw him, draw us to him. Or we see in Ephesians two twenty, where Paul talks about how the church is built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets who have been equipped and empowered by God to to speak his truth to us and that truth serves as a foundation for the church. The church is built on that foundation of the truth. But then Paul is saying here the church then serves as a foundation for the truth. So the church can't exist without the truth holding it up. But the more deeply the church is shaped by God's truth, the more beautifully the church will display that truth to the watching world around us. Does that make sense? The church is built on the truth, but then the church upholds and supports the truth as well. And how does the church serve as a pillar and foundation of the truth? Well, if you look at the first couple of verses of this passage, Paul says, I'm writing these things so that we can know how to behave in the church, which is a buttress and pillar of the truth. But these things that he refers to right there is the entire letter of First Timothy, It's a letter that he was writing to a guy that he was mentoring named Timothy. That's where the title comes from. And if we look at the letter as a whole, we see two really big ways that the church serves as a pillar and a buttress of the truth. First, we serve as a pillar and buttress of the truth by combating false teachers. And second, we serve as a pillar and buttress of the truth by teaching the truth instead of their lies. So if you look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1, right at the start of the letter, the first set of commands that Paul gives to Timothy here are about how to combat false teachers. He says this is really important because if, if we leave the true teaching of Jesus, we'll make a shipwreck of our faith. He says that in 1 Timothy 1, 19. I mean, that image of a shipwreck, that's just brutal, right? No one wants to be in a shipwreck whether physically or in their faith. And so it's important for us to hold on to the true teaching of Jesus because if we don't, we're gonna be like a, a, the Titanic, you know, just running straight into an iceberg and not even realize we're gonna be sunk to the bottom of the ocean in no time at all. So he starts the letter with this warning about false teachers, and then he ends the letter by repeating that warning. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter six, he says there that following false teaching leads to envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who follow false teaching. That's in 1 Timothy 6, 4 through 5. And then he follows up that with commands for Timothy to instead fight for the truth, because he says God's truth leads to righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness and eternal life. That that's drastically different outcomes For our lives based on whether we're following false teaching or God's truth. False teaching leads to envy and dissension. God's truth leads to righteousness and godliness. False teaching leads to slander and evil suspicions. God's truth leads to faith and love. False teaching leads to to friction among people. God's truth leads to steadfastness and gentleness and eternal life. He's drawing out the contrasts showing that what we believe shapes the outcome of our lives. And so Paul bookends the letter of 1 Timothy right at the start and right at the end with calls for Timothy to fight against false teachers and teach the truth instead. It's almost like Paul wants it just so that any time Timothy picks up this letter to reread it, this is front and center in his thought. Fight against false teachers Teach the truth instead. If Timothy doesn't have time to read the full thing, he just opens it up and reads the first section. What's he reading? Fight against false teachers. Teach the truth instead. If he reads the whole letter, what's the last thing that's fresh on his mind as he sets it down? Fight against false teachers. Teach the truth instead. Paul wants this sunk deeply into Timothy's understanding because truth is important. Whether or not we know the truth impacts the way that we live. And when I say know the truth, I'm not talking about whether we can give the right answer on a theology exam. Yes, that's important. But what I'm talking about is knowing it so deeply that it shapes the way we live. You know, when we face hard times, the world is telling us its version of the truth, and God is telling us his version of the truth and which of those versions of the truth is shaping the way we respond to tough situations. The way we respond to hard times shows the world around us whether the things we say we believe about God are true. That's how we serve as a pillar and buttress of the truth, by responding in ways that that hold forth the truth as beautiful So let me give you an example. This week, it's been a really rough week for all Cathay employees. I know in our church we have several people who work for Cathay Pacific, and those of us who don't work for them have friends who do work for them. And the announcement they made this week that they're cutting 8,500 jobs, that makes me angry. Like, if I'm being honest, I'm angry about that. I'm angry because people I love and care about are just having their lives flipped upside down by the company, and I don't like to see those types of things happening to people I care about. And in response to what's happening, you know my natural instinct is to look for the most negative spins on the story that I can find that will make Cathay look as horrible as possible. Because after seeing the people I care about be hurt so deeply by them, I want to hurt Cathay in return. But if I do that, what am I doing? Well, I'm seeking to slander them. I'm feeding evil suspicions. I'm contributing to deepening friction between people. And you know what all of these things are? They're on the list that Paul said, false teaching leads to this way of living. Paul says that if I act on these things, that's evidence that there are areas of my heart that believe the world's version of the truth rather than God's version of the truth. And that's a problem because when I give in to those feelings and those those desires, I'm actually working against what the church is called to be and to do. So what does my heart need in that moment? My heart needs the truth. My heart needs to be reminded that God loves me. My heart needs to be reminded that God loves not only me, but he also loves my friends who are hurting. My heart needs to be reminded that God has a plan and he knows what he's doing. And my heart needs to be reminded of these things, not just on a level where someone says them and pats me on the back and walks away. No, it needs to be reminded of these things on a deep enough level that I feel the truth of them. And that happens, yes, through reading the Bible and through praying, but it also happens through talking to mature Christians who know me well enough that they can remind me of these things and point me back to times where I've seen them play out truly in my life and the lives of the people around me. You know, someone coming along and saying like, Eric, I know this just feels rough, but remember that situation three years ago that felt really rough? And remember how God was faithful then and worked in that situation in a far better way than you could ever have imagined, because he's good and he loves you and he loves your friends and he's faithful. And when when they say those things to me, that's often where where the truth finally sinks in and feels true in my heart. So this happens by the church being a family to me, the church functioning as the household of God. And as my heart is fed by God's truth, that empowers me to live in ways that hold up the truth as glorious and beautiful. That's the mutually supporting relationship I was talking about before, it happens in us, individually and as a community the more our hearts are built up and and supported by god's truth the more we in turn can show forth that truth as good and beautiful to the watching world around us and as we grow not just individually but together in our understanding of the truth and our love for the church we as a church family will grow in our ability to be that pillar and buttress of the truth that God calls us to be, to support the truth, to, to hold it forth to the world around us as beautiful. will grow in our ability to be what the church was meant to be. Being part of the church is an incredible blessing, but that blessing comes with great expectations as well. Which brings us to point number two, obligations for the church. See, because of the important truths of what the church is, there's a really high calling for those of us who, who make up the church. And Paul says he's writing these things. He's writing this letter, 1 Timothy, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the church. That's in verses 14 and 15 of today's passage. And again, if you zoom out and you look at the whole letter, it has all sorts of instructions for what we're supposed to do as the people of God. We're supposed to watch out for false teachers. We're supposed to remember the gospel. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to have proper leadership in the church. We're supposed to have God's word preached and taught properly in the church. We're supposed to live godly lives. We're supposed to interact properly with one another as God's people. There's a lot of things that we're supposed to be doing as the people of God. There's expectations for us. And in addition to everything mentioned explicitly in First Timothy, if you look at Ephesians and Colossians, they also talk about the importance of singing in the church, which is something we do every Sunday. And I realize First Timothy itself doesn't explicitly say that we should sing in the church, but most commentators think that verse 16 of today's passage is actually a hymn that was sung in the early church. Um, So there's actually an implicit expectation even here that the church will sing when we gather together. So if you put these commandments together, of what Paul says we ought to do as the people of God. We'll see that it includes things like singing, like prayer, like preaching. That's that's why we include these elements of our church sur- in our church service every Sunday when we get together because Paul says they're vital and crucial to our life as Christians. If we want to be the people that God wants us to be, we need to be incorporating these things into our lives. And so having preaching and prayer and singing each Sunday when we gather together helps us grow into the people that God calls us to be. And then going back to to Paul's comment in verse 14 and 15 about how he wrote these things so we know how we ought to behave in the church. There's something very interesting there because there's this expectation that Christians, the people who make up the church, will live our lives in a certain way. Now to clarify, he's not saying we become Christians by living good moral lives or living in this way. The message of the gospel is that we can never live good enough lives to meet God's standard, but that God rescues us and forgives us for our sins through the death of Jesus on our behalf. He gives us as a gift what we could never earn for ourselves. So we don't you know, when Paul says we ought to live a certain way in the church, he's not saying we become Christians or we become members of the church by just being good people. We're saved through the death of Jesus by our faith in him alone. But when we trust in him, there's an expectation for the way that we're supposed to live. And when we, when we look at the rest of the verse, there's, there's an expectation for how we're supposed to live and whether or not we're living that way impacts how effective the church will be at doing what the church is supposed to do. You with me? So there's a way where we ought to live in the church, and the church is this pillar and buttress of the truth. And if we are not living the way that God says we ought to live in the church, the church is not going to function properly at holding forth the truth as beautiful to the world around us. And remember, this isn't just an individual thing. The church is the household of God, we see in verse 15. We're a family. We're called to love and support one another and to help each other grow. Or if we look at the language we talked about last week, we said we're stones being built together into a house for God. Every stone needs the stones around it in order to do its job properly. We need one another in order to live the Christian life properly so the church can serve as a proclaimer of God's truth and do its job properly in the world. We need one another. You know, growing up, I sort of got the impression that being a Christian was kind of like the game Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You know that game? It was a TV show that was on when I was a kid and they would give you a series of questions, one at a time. Every question had four possible answers. It was multiple choice and you had to pick which answer was correct. If you got it right, you could move on to the next question. And each question, as you got more and more questions right, each question became worth more money. And if you could get all the questions right, you got a million US dollars. If you got a question wrong, you were out. And depending on how far you got, you might get to take home some amount of money. But with who wants to be a millionaire? You're basically on your own, trying to answer these questions and move your way up the system. You know, you have three, what they call lifelines, three ways that you can get help if it's an emergency, but you can only use each of them once in the entire course of the game. And, you know, you only have a limited number of lifetime lifelines, their power is limited, so you have to use them wisely. And growing up, I thought the Christian life was kind of like, who wants to be a millionaire? Basically, I'm on my own trying to live this thing. There are people around me in the church who if it's an emergency, I can get in touch with them, but who knows how helpful they'll actually be. And I'm probably better off just relying on myself and the force of my own will. Now that is a terrible, terrible, terrible way to try to live the Christian life. It's a way that is doomed for failure because that's not what the church is meant to be. I've learned more recently that the Christian life is probably more like football. And I know what you're thinking. American football or soccer. And guess what? Either one works here. Because one of the things that American football and soccer both have in common is that your team is only as good as your worst player. In American football or in soccer, if you have a defender who cannot stop his man, the other team is going to attack that defender every time and they're just gonna keep scoring and scoring and scoring. And as a team, you don't just look at that guy and say, well, you know, it's his job to stop the guy. Too bad he's not doing his job. No, the coach schemes plays where other teammates can support that defender so he can play better and the team can be better as a result. You come alongside one another and where one person is weak and other people are strong, you support them and give them extra help so that the team as a whole can be better. And then at practice the following week, you come alongside the weaker players and you don't shame them for their failure. You don't pound them down and make them feel bad, but you encourage them. You help them to grow so that they can be better in the future and the team can be better in the future. And, and when we do this well, the team is stronger as a result. That's what the church is meant to be. The stronger ones helping the weaker ones. And you know, some of us are strong in one area, weak in another. Maybe we're supporting others in one area of life and they're supporting us in other areas. But that's the beauty of being the church and being a family is we support one another. And realize, following this this football analogy, teammates trying to help the weak player become strong, it doesn't. their help doesn't always feel loving in that moment. You know, if you're at practice and you're running, they're going to be pushing him to run faster than he thinks he can run. If you're in the weight room, they're going to be pushing him to lift more weights than he thinks he can lift. When he just wants to give up and go home, they're going to force him to keep going, not out of anger, but out of love and out of care for him. And they may even dig into the details of his personal life to help identify things he can do differently in his daily routine to help improve his gameplay or his preparation. And in a similar way, like all those things, they're hard. They're not comfortable but they make you a better player in the long run if you stick with it. And in a similar way, we as a church have a calling to help one another live holy lives, which means we need to get involved with one another on a deeper level so we can support each other in our weaknesses and help one another grow. Sometimes that might mean people in the church push us in ways we don't wanna be pushed. Sometimes our privacy may feel violated because people ask probing questions about our personal lives and we don't want to share about our personal lives, but that's how we grow. And when people start probing into our personal lives, I know the temptation is to disengage from the church completely or to complain about how people at church should just mind their own business. Because let's be honest, nobody likes being asked, for example, whether or not you're looking at pornography. That's not a comfortable conversation to have for the person asking the question or the person answering the question. But statistics say that's one of the biggest areas where Satan is holding back the church from being as effective as we can possibly be at supporting God's truth. And if we're a team and our success or failure in living out our calling as a church rests not in just how we as individuals are doing, but in how everyone around us is doing, We probably need to have those types of difficult discussions sometimes. Being part of the church means being part of God's family. It means being part of the house that God is building for him to live in. And the way we live as individuals and as a group impacts that collective witness, which means that every part of our lives, including our sexuality, is on one level the business of the entire church. God calls us to come alongside one another to live Lives that are connected with one another, that are known on a deep level by one another, not lives that are just hiding and isolated. Because when we live those types of lives where we're supporting one another, that's how the church can be what it's supposed to be and can support and hold up God's truth as beautiful. But I realize that's, that's hard. That's not natural for us, especially in our society. So let's look at point three, motivation for the church, and talk about where we get the strength to have that radical perspective shift on life to move from our deeply ingrained individualism and desire for privacy to this this openness and honesty in life and community. Because I realize our culture says freedom and privacy are precious. There's a new iPhone commercial that recently came out in America promoting how secure the iPhone is. And the commercial shows people going into public places and sharing things that Apple says should not be shared publicly. So the commercial starts with a guy yelling out to a bus full of people, I browsed eight websites for divorce attorneys today. And then through the rest of the commercial, you have someone sharing their login information for all the websites they use with strangers. Someone shares their home address with a bunch of strangers on the street. Someone starts holding up a megaphone and just shouting out their credit card number and a few other things. And then the words pop up on the screen. Some things shouldn't be shared. iPhone helps keep it that way. Privacy, that's iPhone. And that's the message of the world. Privacy is sacred. And what I've just been saying is that, yeah, you, you know, login info, credit card numbers, keep those private. But if you're searching for divorce attorneys online and you're part of the church, that should not be kept private. I'm not saying you need to get up front and announce it to the whole church, but if you're part of a team, do your teammates who are around you know what's going on in your life so they can support you through it, so they can encourage you to grow through it, so they can point you back to Christ in the midst of it? And I realize some people probably hear this and you're just like, nope, if that's, if that's what's expected, I'm out. Asking people to sacrifice privacy for the sake of Jesus, that's a huge ask in our culture is counterintuitive to the cultural air that we breathe. But Paul's saying that's, that's part of what it takes for the church to live properly as the church. And if we're a pillar and buttress of the truth, or we're supposed to be, and yet we spend huge amounts of our lives trying to cover up all the uncomfortable details of our lives, there's something out of sync there. We, we as a community, cannot be a pillar and buttress of the truth if we as individuals are spending our whole lives hiding from one another. And again, I'm not saying you need to share your deepest, darkest secrets with everyone, but I'm asking in the areas where you're struggling in life, now and historically and planning ahead for the future, is there anyone who knows about your struggles and can support you through them in the church? And I'm not pretending that will be easy, it's hard. I'm speaking from experience, it's hard. The first time you share about your struggles with someone else in the church, it's probably gonna feel like a little part of you is dying. And the second time you do it, it's gonna feel like that again. And the 50th time you do it, it's gonna feel like that again. But if the church is called to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, we have to start by being people who value and prioritize truth in our own lives and in our community as a church but it's still hard. It's a transition we cannot make on our own power. We need something outside of ourselves to empower us if we're going to live with that type of crazy honesty. So what can motivate us to pursue this change? The only thing powerful enough to motivate us to give up our privacy in such a radical way is the gospel. You know, the gospel says, of course you're sinful and messed up. You're You're not tricking anyone by trying to hide that. That's why Jesus had to die for you. Actually, the gospel says you are far worse and far more messed up than you've ever imagined you could possibly be. But the gospel also says you are far more loved than you could ever imagine or hope for the gospel sets us free from having to to put on some perfect persona so we can impress everyone around us because it tells everyone in advance, yeah, we're messed up sinners. But it also tells them we're not beyond hope or redemption. The gospel gives us the freedom to say, because I'm loved by Christ, I have nothing to prove and nothing to lose. I can be totally honest. And I don't have to worry about the hit my reputation will take when people around me see my sin. Because guess what? It's all been paid for by Jesus already. And because growth happens through this process of bringing things into the light, not by hiding. And yeah, it may take a hit in their eyes temporarily but actually growing is the goal and god sees the real me anyway and i want to i want to be stronger and better in his eyes which happens through lowering myself in other people's eyes so that i can actually grow in my faith and where do we see this powerful message of the gospel in this passage well we see it in the second half of verse 16. Uh, that's the hymn that I was talking about earlier. I mean, let's go through line by line and just look at what Jesus did to save us and establish the church. First line says he was manifested in the flesh. He became human. God himself left the comforts of heaven and took on human flesh. He lived in our fallen world. He was rejected and hated and despised and betrayed and eventually murdered. He went through all of this because he loves you. You know, any reputation hit that you might take if people around you knew the mess that's in your life, it's child's play in comparison with the hit to Jesus' reputation that he took for you. Next up, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Throughout the life of Jesus, the Holy Spirit stepped in again and again to show God's approval of Jesus and of Jesus' work. And the ultimate demonstration of God's approval of Jesus came at his resurrection, which remember was only possible because he first died for our sins. God approves of Jesus and his sacrifice, his sacrifice for you, which means that if you trust in Jesus, God approves of you. Just as Jesus was vindicated by the spirit, you can be vindicated by the spirit through Jesus. Third, Jesus was seen by angels. Think about the story of Easter morning. The ladies are going to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body for burial. They get there, and who's there? Angels. Angels who had seen Jesus rise from the dead. At the ascension, when Jesus returned to the Father's right hand in heaven, who's surrounding the throne in heaven? Angels. The angels celebrate Jesus and the work that he did for us. If Jesus and his work are so great that even the angels celebrate it, How much more should you and I believe in him and reorient our entire lives around him? Fourth, he was proclaimed among the nations. This good news of Jesus and his death for our sins and the salvation possible through him went out and spread through the world. It spread beyond Israel, the the place that had originally received the good news about God, and it went to the ends of the earth because of Jesus' obedience in humbling himself to fulfill God's will for him. His name spread throughout the world. And then it says in line five, he was believed on in the world. It's not just that people share about him, but people trust in him. And as the good news of Jesus is shared throughout the world, people have their lives transformed by him. And then finally, line six, he was taken up in glory. Jesus now sits at the father's right hand, ruling with authority over everything, over the world, over our lives, over the church. And notice the progression of the hymn. Line one starts with Jesus leaving the glory of heaven to come down to earth and become one of us. But it ends in line six with Jesus being exalted. Back to the Father's right hand. Glory. That's the pattern of the Christian life. It happens in miniature every time our sin comes into the open and, ex- and is exposed and dealt with by Jesus so that we can grow. We're lowered in the eyes of others, just like Jesus was lowered in people's eyes by leaving heaven and coming to earth. But then because he endured that lowering, he was exalted by God. And in the same way, when we bring our sin and our issues into the open, that's when God works in us to reshape us and make us more like him. And as that happens in not just one or two of us, but in us as a church community, as as the bridge church, That's how God builds us up as his household into a church that can truly serve as a a foundation and a pillar of the truth. Remember, we don't become Christians by pulling ourselves up through our own moral effort and good works. We become Christians by trusting in the death of Jesus for our sins. And yet he calls us to a high and difficult calling as his people. That's that's part of what is expected of us if we are going to be the church that God wants us to be. But in comparison to what Jesus went through to rescue us, what he calls us to is nothing in comparison. As the church, we are the household of God. We, not just as individuals, but as a community, are called to live in a way together that upholds God's truth and shows it as glorious to the watching world around us. And to do that, it's going to take all of us. At times, it means having the love to come alongside others and help them through hard times of sin, hard times or sin, sorry. At other times, it means having the humility to have others come alongside us and help us through our hard times and sin. But that's how we grow as a church. That's how we do what we're called to do as a church so that God can be glorified and those who don't know him yet can see the beauty of who he is and come to know him as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for creating the church. We thank you for giving us a family as your people, that you haven't left us alone, but you've invited us to be part of a people who can follow you together. Pray that you would teach us to live as a family, to support one another, to come alongside one another, to encourage one another, and that your name would be honored and glorified through the lives that we live as your people. Thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.